Welcome to the River Bluff Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy this sermon from Kingdom Coach Kurt Bradford. And for more information about us, please visit riverbluff.org. And well, good morning. My name is Kurt Bradford. Uh, I'm part of part of the River Bluff family. Been uh, been here quite a while. I'm older than dirt, and uh, they, I've been invited to to fill in for Pastor Joe in this series. Hey, Alan, how you doing, buddy? Why did your hair turn gray and mine turn loose? <laughs> anyway, um, so what we're doing is we're looking at a series called Encounter. It's people's first encounter with Jesus. And today we're going to look at a passage in uh, Luke chapter 24. So if you have a Bible, uh, turn over there, please. Uh, and if you don't, there's one in the seat in front of you, the little rack under the chair. We're going to look at uh, all of the verses and uh, talk about them. I want to read straight through it and then come back and comment on on uh, each verse and the various things that God has to teach us. Let's start with verse uh, 13, Luke 24, 13. This, oh, this takes place, by the way, on Easter Sunday, or what we call Resurrection Sunday today. Easter Sunday, this is taking place there. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not come back, when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen even a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them, and their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scripture? This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me if you would. Our Father and our God, uh, as we prayed earlier in the first service, uh, we ask your spirit to speak to us through your word. Um, I'm thankful for the opportunity you give me to teach 
this in my, uh, the, the fellowship to which Joyce and I have committed ourselves, our faith family called River Bluff. I'm grateful for that opportunity. So I pray now that uh, the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart, the preparations that I've made and the work of your Holy Spirit would accomplish what you want to accomplish in the people who are gathered in this room and those who may be watching online. I do pray for your uh, kingdom will to be done in and through this body of believers called River Bluff Church. And now if you would join me in praying the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And all God's people said, amen, amen. This is an interesting uh, story. Now this is, it's, it says, uh, it began by saying two of them. And uh, whenever you see that word, you know, like you see two of them, you want to say two of who, wh wh who is them? Um, on the day of the resurrection of Jesus, you know, it, it wasn't immediately that they all knew Jesus was alive. Uh, most of them were hidden away in a, in a room. Uh, they were afraid. So they were hidden away. And when we, you get over into the book of Acts, the, uh, Acts chapter 2, there were 120 of them in a room. What we call the upper room sometimes where the Lord's Supper was held. So there were a lot of disciples. Now, it's important for you to know that the apostles, that is, you know, what we call the twelve, of course, there were only 11 by this time. Judas had taken his own life. The 11 apostles were all disciples, but not every disciple was an apostle. Does that make sense? So you've got 11 apostles, and we don't know exactly how many others that were disciples of Jesus. And we don't know how long they had been disciples of Jesus. They might have followed Jesus since the beginning, which was roughly three years, or they might have just started following him recently, or maybe just in, whenever he came into Jerusalem, but they were disciples of Jesus, which meant they were people who had placed their faith, their trust, their hope in Jesus as being the Messiah, the Savior of the world. That's who they were. So two of them were headed back to their, this little village called Emmaus. It's about seven miles northwest of Jerusalem. And uh, Jesus came up and joined them as they were walking, and they didn't recognize him. Now, of course, I wondered, what do you mean they didn't recognize him? They, they, if they were disciples, they knew what he looked like. But I, I said, well, now, why would they not recognize him? And, of course, the first explanation may be that it was a supernatural event, you know, that Jesus had supernaturally made them unable to recognize him. That's possible. Another possibility, though, is that they were in a crowd this story takes place on what we call Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, which was right at the end of the Jewish annual celebration called Passover. And whenever Passover was celebrated, almost every Jew would go to Jerusalem because it was a big deal to be in Jerusalem. So there, sometimes the population was swelled by hundreds of thousands of people. But then after the Passover was over, everybody would go home. So there would be crowds on every road leading out of Jerusalem. And probably there was a crowd. 
And these disciples, these two guys were walking and there was a crowd of people. They may not, may not have even noticed that someone came up and started walking along with them. A third possibility is that they were so engrossed in their conversation that they didn't notice. They didn't, have you ever been that way? Have you been so focused on something that you don't notice something else that's going on around you? It happens regularly. You know, and I think, Kurt's opinion, my name's Kurt, Kurt's opinion, I think they, were, they weren't just talking about it. I think they were arguing with one another. I think they were debating, what do you think this means? Uh, Jesus, we thought this Jesus was the Messiah. What, what do you, and then they were speculating. You know, I have a, a bad habit. It's, uh, it may be the habit of some of y'all, but I know it's my habit. In the absence of a story, I make up a story. If I don't understand everything that's going on, sometimes I'll say, well, maybe it was, you know, pretty soon that becomes the, the story. So th that's what was going on. So maybe they were so focused on what their interpretation of what happened or their understanding of what happened. Or maybe they're just talking about it, debating it, trying to, trying to figure it out. They, they didn't notice Jesus came up. But a fourth possibility that kept them from recognizing Jesus, I think, was that the last time they saw Jesus, he was on the cross. Isaiah chapter 53 tells us when Jesus was on the cross, he was, his body was so twisted, broken, not broken, but twisted, bruised, bleeding, that they probably didn't even recognize. That's, that's from Isaiah 53, written 600 years before Jesus. So the last time they saw Jesus, he was, that's, what he, that's what he looked like. So it could have been any one of those four reasons. Pick one. All they say is that they, they couldn't recognize him. But then when Jesus came up to as he's walking with them and everything, Jesus says, it's basically in modern language, he said, what y'all talking about? What y'all talking about? And, and they, they look down and they say, are you kidding? You're the only one in town that doesn't know what happened? Surely, surely you knew they, they, there was, you remember Palm Sunday? The whole town goes out to celebrate Jesus coming in, shouting hallelujah, calling him the Messiah and all. I mean, there's everybody there shouting Jesus is Lord and, and save us and all that. You know, that's, that was the beginning. But then through the week, Jesus did some miracles and he, and he made the Pharisees mad and he drove the people out of the temple. And then he got arrested and their leaders got together and condemned him. And then eventually he was crucified. And they're saying, you didn't know about any of that. It's, it's a little bit condescending. You know, as they're looking, they're thinking, you know, there must be something wrong with you that you don't know. I mean, this happened out in front of everybody. Surely you know about it. And they say, you don't know about these things? And Jesus says, what things? What things? Don't you love it? Jesus asks questions. One thing you need to remember, when Jesus asks questions, it's not because he doesn't know the answer. That's because he wants to hear your understanding. Because he may need to deal with that, you know. So Jesus said, what things? What, what are you talking about? And so they begin this long explanation of what had all this going on. And, and in, uh, wait a minute, I'll get the verse right in a minute. He said, do you, know, do you know these things? And they said in verse 24, he said, they said these to him concerning Jesus, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, now it's the third day, and some women of our company amazed us. They said, his body's gone. 
So this is the two guys, Cleopas and whoever the other guy is. They're telling Jesus, here's what happened. There was this guy, and he was a great man. And he did a lot of miracle stuff. And he taught a lot of stuff. And he was a, they called him a prophet. It's kind of interesting. They saw him to be like, kind of like Moses or Elijah or Isaiah or Jeremiah, one of those great prophets. They weren't calling him the Savior and for a while, they thought he was the Messiah. Because did you notice what they said? We had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. You know, I mean, it's not in the text, but I think it's safe to conclude that when they said we had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel, but obviously we were wrong. Obviously we failed. Obviously he wasn't. So our leaders, our so-called religious leaders, they were jealous of him. They had him condemned and turned him over to the Romans who crucified him as a criminal. And if that isn't enough, some women this morning went to the tomb and couldn't find his body, and they said they saw angels. Can you imagine? I mean, this is the guy explaining that. Now, we have, a, we have a problem today. When I say we, I'm talking collectively. We have a problem today that C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery. Chronological snobbery. What that basically means is that we think we're the smartest people that ever lived. That all of the generations before us were not as smart as we are. Because we know so much. We're so smart. And so we know, you know, that's like today, we say, well, nobody believes in angels today. Come on, man, nobody believes in angels. And we look back at them and say, well, you know, back in those times, those people really simple-minded, they all believed in angels. No, they didn't. They, they were just as incredulous, and especially when you told them, now, ladies, don't get offended at this, but whenever a woman saw it, said she saw an angel, a man would generally say, yeah, yeah, right. So that's what they're saying. They're saying we, ha we had a savior. We thought he was a savior, and he wasn't. And then they killed him. And then the ladies said, he's, said his body's gone. And they said, not only that, get this. They said they saw angels. Can you believe that? You know, and Jesus is, is looking at them because this is their version, their understanding, their perspective of what actually happened that weekend. That's what they thought. That's what they thought. And Jesus said, Jesus looks at him and he says, oh, oh, wow. Foolish ones. Now, I got to clarify here. There is a Greek word for fool. It's the word moros, M-O-R-O-S. We get our English word moron from it, we, a moron. It's, uh, it's the word, it's stupid. They don't know anything. They're dumb. They don't know anything. But that's not the word Jesus uses here. Jesus is kind. What he does is he says, oh, simple ones. Does that make sense? He's saying, look, you don't really understand. He's like, uh, I heard Mike Huckabee say one time in a private conversation, he said, we were talking about presidential candidates, and he described one of the presidential candidates by saying, well, he don't know what he don't know. These guys here, they don't know what they don't know. That's what's going on. And Jesus is saying, oh, bless your heart. It's like your mother's saying, oh, bless your heart, which is kind of the same thing. So you're a dummy. You know, you really are. You don't know what you're doing. You bless your heart. I mean, Jesus says, oh, bless your heart. And then he talks and tells them that was it not necessary 
for the Christ to suffer before entering his glory. Once again, he's talking about Isaiah, Isaiah 53, where Isaiah talks about the Messiah and his coming to take our sins upon himself, that all of our iniquities were placed on him. Everything was placed on him. You know, when they said we, we had hoped he was the one who would redeem Israel, from their perspective, the way you redeemed Israel and, and their understanding, what he was saying was, you thought I was just coming to set first century Judaism free from the Roman powers. That's what you thought I came to do. It was like, he, he was saying to them, you thought Rome was the problem. And that what I did was I came to, to, to get rid of Rome and to put a new guy on the throne and make Israel the great power it was one time because that's what they, in, they understood redemption meant that because that was what it meant to them. In other words, they were looking at it from their perspective in their time dealing with their problems. Is that something that you do sometimes? I know I do. A lot of times I'm wanting God to do something and it's basically what I want him to do in order to accomplish my will and it very rarely has anything to do with his will what Jesus is saying look the Messiah didn't come to conquer Rome the Messiah came to suffer and to die on the cross because he loves those of you who are his people his creation hmm. and so because they got it this way then he begins to look back at the Old Testament the scripture says Beginning with Moses, he interpreted to them and explained everything in the Old Testament about, did you see what he explained it? It's about himself. So what Jesus is saying, saying here is he interprets the Old Testament to show that everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus. Everything. And he begins with Moses. Now, what that means, for those of you that don't know, the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, we believe all of those were written by Moses. That's who we think wrote those. And so what he's saying is, beginning with Genesis, Jesus began to show them the Christ, Jesus Christ, all through the Old Testament. He began to show him things like when he was on the cross and he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He was quoting David a thousand years before in Psalm chapter 22. You see, what he's doing is he's showing them, look, the hope of Israel is Jesus, not to get rid of Rome. It's the hope of Israel is Jesus. Whenever David said, the Lord is my shepherd, Jesus says, I am, you may remember, I am what? The good shepherd. And so he's just showing them, and, and these guys are going, wow, wow. And then it says Jesus, they invite him to come in, and then Jesus says, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep on going. And they say, no, don't leave, don't leave. They say, please stay, come on in the house. You know why? The best Bible teacher that has ever lived just walked with them and taught them. I mean, it's like the person who wrote or supervised the writing so that it would be inerrant and true, was actually walking with them explaining texts from the Old Testament. 
I just, just past week, I, earlier this week, when I'm reading Proverbs, I'm reading as it talks about wisdom, and it shows in there where Jesus is who they're talking about. He is the true wisdom that has come down about all things. He's explaining to them. So Jesus says, all right, I'll, I'll stay with you a little while. And then when they walk into the house and they're sitting down, these are, by the way, these are Baptists. Because the first thing they do is eat. Did you notice that? They sit down and then they eat. So they're sitting down to eat. And as they're eating, Jesus just takes the bread. He, he's not doing the Lord's Supper. He's just taking a loaf of bread and breaking it in pieces, which he also did at communion, the first communion. And as soon as they do that, they recognize him. Their eyes are open. And they realize, this is Jesus. And then the Bible says, he vanished. He was gone. He was gone. And then they look at one another and said, didn't our hearts burn while he was speaking to us or while he was explaining scripture to us? That was Jesus. And then, you know what they do next? I didn't read it, but they run back to the others to tell him, he's alive. You know, in Easter, when we said, he is risen, and you all answered what? He is risen indeed. That's where you got it from, this story right here. He has risen indeed. And that changed everything. These guys who were looking sad because this stranger didn't know the story, and these guys who were disappointed because Jesus hadn't done what they thought he was going to do, these guys who were defeated, probably wondering, what do we do now? All of a sudden, it's a new day. It's a brand new day. It's a brand new world. He's alive. He's alive. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. He is alive. Therefore, everything he ever said was true. Everything he did was ever true is of God. Jesus is truly Lord. He's Lord of all. And that changed everything for those fellows, those guys, those disciples. Some of you, probably most of you that are here today or maybe watching, you're disciples of Jesus. You're not perfect disciples of Jesus. You're a work in progress, just like this old man here. Work in progress. He's still working on me. I'm not what I want to be. I'm not what I'm going to be, but I thank God I'm not what I was. God is working on me, transforming me. Every day, every day is a new day. Even at 74 next month, he's still teaching me new things and helping me, transforming my life completely. And that's what Jesus does in the lives of disciples. That's what he does. He transforms several things. I want to point out four to you. The first thing he transforms is your understanding. Jesus transforms my understanding. These guys, whenever Jesus asked them to explain what had happened, you know, it was about three or four verses. They said, here's what happened. And Jesus took their understanding and then said, well, really, he didn't beat them or tell them they were, I mean, he didn't do that. He just said, well, let me explain to you really, here's what happened. And he took their understanding and he broadened it. That's what he does for disciples. See, when you and I look at events, like we read the paper, Lord knows, that dates me, doesn't it, to say the paper, yeah. When you read the news or the, or the whatever, you have one of those things, one of those machines, what do they call them? Computer. No, I'm just kidding. But when, when you read the news, don't you normally have some sort of understanding of what that's all about? And you think about it and you say, ah, 
here's what it is. Now, you may know there are limits to what you can understand, but you do have an understanding of what's going on. But how about understanding that comes from the Lord? How about when, how about when Jesus looks at the issue, let's say, of abortion, a current issue? What is God's understanding of abortion? Or sexual immorality, what is God's understanding? You see, God understands that sin is just not breaking God's rules. Sin is living a destructive life. When he says the wages of sin is death, he's not just talking about people go to hell that don't get saved. He's talking about when you choose to walk in the ways that God calls sin, it's like destroy it's like a eating po- drinking poison and expecting somebody else to die. It's like doing something terrible and thinking you got away with it. <laughs> you don't get away with it. So he enlarges our understanding. Paul prayed for all of the people that he worked with to have increased not just understanding, not just that they would be smarter, but they would have understanding that comes from the Father through the Holy Spirit. Look at Paul's writing to Timothy. 2 Timothy 2, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Who gives understanding? The Lord. See, when you're saved, the Holy Spirit lives in you, and he teaches you, and he will enlarge your understanding so that you'll understand a lot of things that you don't currently understand. Now, don't take credit for it, because it's the Holy Spirit that's doing it. Paul prayed for the Colossian church in chapter 1. He said, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Did you know there's a difference in worldly wisdom and spiritual wisdom? There's a difference in the wisdom of men and the wisdom of God. There are all of those things. Uh, I tell you, uh, I started walking with Jesus decades ago. And uh, I compare it to a lesson I have Uh, that God kind of showed me about learning, about understanding. When I I was called into the ministry, I had to go back to college. I I went to two colleges after high school and flunked out of both of them. I flunked out of Furman University, had a scholarship there, a trumpet scholarship, and I like to say I blew it. But I have a a trumpet scholarship at Furman, and uh, I didn't didn't know you actually had to go to class, so, so I didn't. And I flunked out, lost scholarship that kicked me out of school and everything. Then I did, I went where? To the University of South Carolina. And of course, we, we'll take anybody there. And so they, they took me there. And uh, within a year, I flunked out of there too. And then the U.S. Army said, we'd like to have you come in our school. You know, there's this little thing called Vietnam going on. And so I, I, I went into the Army. When I got out of the Army, Mary Joyce came home, gave my life back to Jesus. And a few years later, uh, God called me into ministry. And I knew that if God calls me into ministry, I think he calls you to prepare. You know, so, so that's why so I had to go back to school. Well, I'd flunked out of two schools. And so I, I started back at a little small school called North Greenville up in the uh, upstate. And then uh, graduated from Gardner-Webb. Then went on to seminary and other things along those lines. And here, here's how I look back at that time in my life. If, um, if, there, if there's a big, if there's a field, let's say this field's that big. Okay, it's a big field. And I'm walking into the field. That field represents what I don't know. Does that make sense? So here's a, here's a feel. It's this big. And so when I'm thinking, what is it that I don't know? It's this. Everything in there, I don't know that. Well, as I started learning and praying and growing in, in discipleship and all of those kind of things, I took more steps into that field. 
But what I discovered is the field had grown exponentially. And, and instead of being, this is what I don't know, it's, this is what I don't know. And, and I tell you what it will do, it will humble you. It will humble you when you realize how much your understanding is actually a gift from God rather than your education or your learning or your whatever. I mean, you need to do those things, of course. But it is God Almighty, the Holy Spirit, who enlightens your understanding so that everything you can get an understanding that's not just the opinion, not just Kurt's opinion or two or three guys' opinion. It's actually understanding that comes from God himself to help you understand. Today, when you ask somebody, what's going on in our culture? What's wrong with our culture? Ask anybody, any age, what's wrong with our culture? And we all have an idea. We'll throw it out there. Here's what we need. You know, here's our problem. Here's what we Who actually knows what we need? God Almighty. So God Almighty, knowing what we need, what did he give us? Jesus. For God so loved. You see, when God looked at the problems of this world and this culture, he had a bunch of options available to him. <laughs> but what he chose to do was to come himself, to give himself, taking our sin, all of our wickedness, all of our mess on himself and dying in our place, in your place, so that you could be free from the penalty and the power of sin. That's what God did. See, when you get that understanding, you begin to say, oh, okay. It also helps you understand when you look around and say, why do so many people believe stuff that's not true? Are you kidding? That's the results of this world. When we're rebellious people, when we turn against God and we reject the advice, the counsel, the laws of God, it produces the world that we have. What's the answer? No, the answer is not to do this or do that or do that. It's Jesus. That's the understanding that we get from Jesus. We get a second thing, I think, as disciples of Jesus, and that's perspective. Perspective. From, from those two guys' perspective, their biggest problem was Rome. From God's perspective, their biggest problem was sin and the hold that it had. The deceptive hold of the world, the flesh, and the devil on humanity. Humanity's greatest problem is actually that we have been held captive to evil probably most since we got here. And, and that's why we need to be set free. And from God's perspective, you don't set them free by giving them a list of rules or, or creating a new religion. You do these five things and you'll be... What he does is he comes and he dies in our place and he says, here is freedom. And freedom is offered freely. From his perspective, the way to save humanity is through Jesus. He changes our perspective. Look at Colossians 3. He says, if then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds. Notice that? Christianity is not a mindless faith. 
You don't have to take your mind and never use it again to follow Jesus. He says, but set your minds on things that are above and not on things that are on earth. And he's not saying that you need to be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. He's saying, look at things from God's perspective. God's perspective is that this is his creation, his beloved creation. And from God's perspective, God is good. God is generous. God can be trusted. And God gives himself out of love for his creation. We have to begin to see things from his perspective. 2 Corinthians 4 says, we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Transient, that means they're here today and gone tomorrow. Kind of like our hair, Ellen. You know, you have hair, gray, I have no hair. My hair was here yesterday. I saw some, we saw a picture the other day of Joyce and me and Jason. Heather, I'm not even neglecting you, honey. I know you're there. But Jason's my firstborn. But there's a picture of Joyce and me and Jason. He's about two or three years old, and I've got bangs. I do. I've got bangs and hairs over my ears and everything. I look pretty, pretty cool, you know, everything like that. And, I'm, and I, I just happened to look up, and we have where our TV is. It's a glass thing there, and you can see yourself in the glass. And I looked down at that picture, and I looked up, and there I was. That's why I say, hair today, gone tomorrow. You know, pow. Everything is, is what God is saying. Listen, Dallas Willard said it so greatly. Here's what he said. You are an unceasing spiritual being with an eternal destiny in God's great universe. You are. See, we tend to think we're only earthly beings that, you know, oh, they're dead. I'm so sorry. They're gone. They're not gone. My mother and father are not gone. (laughs) My mother and father are in heaven. My mother and grandmother and father, all the people that I love, those that know Christ, they're in glory right now in heaven because we're eternal. See, if you begin to think about that, that this life is not the only life. There is eternity. So you can be able to look and say, wait a minute, what happens today is not the most important thing, but what happens in eternity? See, sometimes you can look and think, you know, well, did I do a good deed today? I'm I'm an Eagle Scout. As a matter of fact, I'm a scout. So we had this little thing that said, uh, do a good deed daily. We used to go to bed at night. I, I did a good deed. Did a good deed daily. All that kind of stuff. You know what? Look at the power that your good deed will have in eternity. I talked with uh, Peter, who runs Chick-fil-A, one of my favorite gourmet restaurants. I was talking with Peter yesterday, and he was talking about the young people that work there. You know, a lot of people from our church, some of our young people and everything. And, and I said, well, I, I'm so glad you work with these young people. He said, yeah. He said, We feel like we're investing in them for the future. And I said, well, you know, you won't actually see the fruit of what you're investing in these young people for maybe for decades or maybe even in forever. Because, see, we tend to be immediate. If we don't see the immediate result, we figure that it's not out there. You know, there's two teachers over here. I'm looking at three teachers I'm looking at over there. That these folks that are teachers, you don't always see immediately what's happening. But everything that you do for others bears fruit in the future and eternally you know I, I, there used to be a song there about a guy would come up and say to you when you get to heaven thank you for giving to the Lord years ago and what he's saying he's saying well what are you talking about I, I had a pastor tell me recently he uh, I met him it was well, been in the last year 
that I was, I was speaking somewhere doing a thing, and, and he came to me, and he said, I just want to say thank you. And I said, well, who are you? Because I didn't recognize. I didn't know who he was. And he told me his name. I still didn't recognize. I had no idea who he was. And I said, well, what are you thanking me for? And he said, you led a conference at Ridgecrest Conference Center about 30 years ago, and you said something in there. And then he went on to did how something that I said 30 years ago in a conference at a Baptist Conference Center made an impact on a guy that ran into me accidentally 30 years later. You see, that's the way it works. The work you do with children and with young people, the work you do at, at your office. I mean, whenever you pray for patience so that you won't kill your coworker, you know, that sort of a thing, you know, that bears fruit. All the good that you do, when you bless, you may not know the result immediately, but God takes that and uses it for his kingdom purposes. See, that's having a heavenly perspective. That's what it means to have a heavenly perspective. I had to, when I finished here, uh, I say finished here, those of you that have come since I've been, I was let go. <laughs> yeah, they, uh, well, it got bad. I was dribbling when I <laughs> taught here and everything. And so it just, yeah. no, no, I, I retired from here. It's been almost seven years ago that, that, uh, that I, re is that right, baby? Where are Joyce? Eight? Good Lord. Anyway, eight years ago. So uh, I got invited to go a lot of places to speak. Well, because I knew this church, I'd been pastor for 26 years here, I would regularly interact with members of the church, and I'd hear about, you know, what God's doing in their life, how to pray for them. It's sort of like, I mean, it's kind of like we knew how we were doing. And whenever I started going to preach in these other churches, I would get there, and I'd look out, and I wouldn't know a soul. I didn't know anybody out there. So I never knew whether I was doing a good job or not. So a lot of the other church, a lot of churches still do this thing where the preacher goes to the back door and you're forced to shake hands with him. You know that? And you have to say something nice. You have to lie to him and tell him what, you know, what a great sermon it was and why you fell asleep and things like that. You know, so, so, so anyway, I'm standing back there at the back door and, you know, and, and people are telling me, you know, that was a great message. You know, I, you know, every time they tell me, I'm, I'm really just standing at the door kind of like this, you know, and somebody say, well, that was a good message. And I go, oh, yeah. Yeah, and they say, yeah, I say, oh, I love that. That's wonderful. Oh, yeah, yeah. After a while, you know, I begin thinking, uh-huh. I'm pretty stinking good. I got it. Yeah, I got it, you know. <laughs> but then the Lord, the Lord, <laughs> the Lord just kind of, uh, my grandfather had an expression called jerk a knot in your tail. He jerked the knot in my tail, and he said, listen, the most important thing is when I say, well done. You can get well done from people. All you got, you can get a dog and pony show and get well dones. But from a heavenly perspective, what matters is Jesus' well dones. Young people, I know sometimes it seems like the next most important thing is your grades, graduating, college, getting a job, getting, I mean, all those kind of things. And, and those are very important. They're, they're part of life. They really are. But the most important thing in your life is what kind of person are you going to be? What kind of person are you going to be? Because being trumps doing every time. There are people who do a lot of wonderful things, but they're terrible people. If you will focus your heart and your life on being what Christ wants you to be, it will change what you do. Enough of that. Number three. Following Jesus as a disciple will transform your way of living. 
It will actually transform your way of living. You know, did you know you are free, not, not, not just because you live in America, but you are free to choose how you will live. Did you know that? You, you, you are free to choose whether you're going to live the way of Jesus or you're going to live some other expert somewhere that you think knows what he's doing or even some other religion or no religion at all. You're free to choose. But Jesus has shown us what I call the good and beautiful life. He has shown us here's a way to live that is not just the way to live that's, that's good. It is beautiful. It is filled with love. You know, and uh, David wrote in Psalm 16, you will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. Did you notice that joy, pleasures, happiness? See, some of us are, are so obsessed with um, doing things our own way. You know, I did it my way. The first time that was said was in the book of Judges where it said, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. See, the, the biggest enemy we fade, I, faith, Kurt's opinion, I don't think it's the devil. I think it's the flesh. I think it's ourselves. Because what we do is we, just, we read in the Bible. The Bible says, listen, be generous. And we're going, yeah, yeah, it's easy for you to say that. You're God. You own everything. Personally, I'm going to be selfish. Or how about this one? Jesus says, Forgive. Because it will, it will put a root of bitterness in you if you don't forgive. And we're going to say, well, yeah, Jesus, well, if you knew what they did to me, you wouldn't have said that. Or if God says, be faithful to your spouse. Keep yourself until you're married. We're going, yeah, well, that's not what the culture's doing. You know, all my friends are doing. Yeah. Do you understand what I'm saying? So you have the choice regularly of whether to take the teachings of Jesus and apply them to your life because you trust them and you believe them. Or whether you're just keeping it so you won't get in trouble. Far too many of us do what Willard calls sin management. We just want to make sure we don't do too many sins. Rather than trusting that everything Jesus says is good and right and true is actually good and right and true. And I would suggest countercultural. Right now the culture is saying that the way to get what you want is force. Power. You know what Jesus says? Love, kindness. That's totally countercultural. It really is. Jesus is teaching us the way of life. And when, whenever Jesus said in Luke 6, 46, he said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? That's because, another Kurtz opinion, I think there's a lot of us who are born-again Christians, but we think Christianity is only about heaven. It's not about how we live now. And we look at the teachings of Jesus as if they're optional. Here's an option. Try this, try this, try this. Rather than being the way of life that is actually the truth, the way of life that's good and beautiful. I think that's going to be one of the things that uh, we're going to have to do. I work a lot with churches now that are declining and one of the things I keep saying is that we're going to need to strengthen what remains, which is not just trying to get more people into the building. It's trying to get more of the Holy Spirit filling the people who are currently in the building. 
so that when they live outside of the building, they are living the way Jesus taught them to live. See, the teachings of Jesus are not just good ideas. They're actually truth. And that's what Jesus has taught us, that he changes your whole way of living when you allow him to transform you. The last thing I think Jesus transforms, though, is the, the one we've sung about, we've talked about, and we're going to wind up thinking about, and that is Jesus will transform your hopes. Where they had said we had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel, these days I think we hope in a lot of, a lot of things. Hope, uh, Tim Keller says, hope is a, uh, let's see, a life-changing certainty that something that hasn't happened yet will happen. That's what hope is. A lot of us hope that the world, the culture will get better. We hope the culture will get better. That's a good hope. It's a good hope. A lot of us hope that our, well, those people that are my age will hope that the stock market won't crash and all of your retirement income be eaten up, you know. Uh, a lot of us hope that we won't go to war. A lot of us hope that they find a cure for COVID. A lot of us hope that, uh, well, a lot of things. We, 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 we tend to put our hope in a lot of places. I'm convinced, though, that all our hope should be in Jesus. Now, I'm not just talking about you become some kind of religious nut. And you never have a conversation with anybody about anything. But, but once you begin to see, to have the understanding that Jesus is not simply one of the authors of a religion. He is the son of God who was present at creation and made human beings and gave us ways to live. And said, this is the good and beautiful life because you are an eternal unceasing being. This is the way to live. And what we have to do is get to the place where we're saying, look, I, I believe that, Lord. And I'm going to live that. And not just do sin management where you're trying to live a good and moral life. But rather where you're asking Jesus to transform you to be more like him to be more like him, to be more filled with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control, to, to just transform me from the inside out so that I will be more like Jesus. Now, when you do that and you start praying that and God starts changing you, listen, I want to tell you, you need to prepare yourself. You will be in a minority. Because our culture believes more in other things. Oh, they tolerate us, you know, as long as we stay in our place. As long as we're marginalized, we don't try to enforce our will on anybody. But let me just say to you that I really do believe the Lord is doing a work in his church today. And I think what he's doing is strengthening those who are in the church today, we grieve over those who are not, those who have walked away or fallen away, wandered away, but God is strengthening those who remain, which may be you. And God is saying to you, I can transform your understanding. I can transform your perspective. 
I can transform the way you live. I can transform your hopes, even though you're no longer the majority. Even though your worldview may be marginalized by other people. Even though people may think that you're crazy. But his way is the way, the truth, and the life. So world change is in Jesus. And Jesus is in you if you're a disciple. So that means that you have a part to play in changing the world. Wow. That means that you're not, you're not an extra in the play. You're not just a guy running the lights or going to bring the furniture on the stage. You actually have a part to play. It may be a small part or a large part. But it will only be effective if your hope for understanding is in Jesus. And if your perspective is a heavenly perspective. And if the way you live is based on Jesus, not just a neat idea or a few friends. And that your hope, all my hope, all your hope is in Jesus. Hmm. Pray with me. Our Father and our God, I pray now for your spirit to take that which I've tried to teach and that you will use it for your kingdom purposes. I pray that uh, every person who is gathered here today or watching online or even watching later will consider, where is my hope? And that they will renew and rededicate their hope, their understanding, their perspective, and even their very life to knowing you, to being transformed to Christ-likeness, and to serving you, to be an instrument for your uh, work on earth. Thank you, Lord, for calling people like us to serve you and to, to be instruments of change. We pray, Father, that you would do a work in us to make us the kind of people you want us to be. And Lord, if there are folks here today, maybe they have never begun their walk with you in faith, maybe today would be the day they say, Lord, I repent of my sin, running my own life. I do confess Jesus is Lord. For those maybe, Lord, who are perhaps prodigals, it maybe has been a long time since they really sincerely, genuinely followed you. Maybe they're even in the pig pens of life today. Would you show them they can come home, that you're the waiting father? And Father, I pray most of all for the, those who are members of churches but have never really just decided to be disciples, to allow you to influence all of their life, not just part of their life. We pray all of these things and ask you to accomplish through this, this teaching that somehow this will be the day that new things begin in their life. I do pray this in your name, Lord Jesus, and for your kingdom. Amen.